Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks. This is the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. In this special series, we present sessions from a recent symposium to mark the 50th anniversary of the Australian newspaper. These sessions were recorded with assistance from Sky APAC and Macquarie University. Thanks for the support. Now, each of us will... Um, if you look at the history of the Australian, and Paul has given you an erudite uh, account of that this morning, you can see that there were uh, various eras or ages or waves or whatever you want to call them. And it just happens that uh, if we take it chronologically, um, I'm entitled to kick this off because I was there before these <laughs> lovely panellists were here. Um, and each of us will give a brief overview of where we came from and the context of our time at the Australian. Um, I joined the Adelaide News as a copy boy in 1960. Um, I stayed in South Australia uh, until 1968. In 1966, I was enormously proud to have my first words appearing in the Australian because uh, I was then writing politics for the Adelaide News and the Australian wanted a, uh, an assessment, a summary, um, a feature piece on what was happening in South Australia and asked me to write it. And I thought, wow, a national platform. Wow, this is something very special. Um, I later reported the Mexico Olympics. Uh, we had a team of two reporters at the 1968 Olympics uh, covering for uh, the news, the Daily Mirror and the Australian. Uh, the, uh, I think uh, the most recent team was, what, 37 or 38? Um, vastly different in those days. And, um, yeah, uh, once again, I got that buzz of having my copy appearing daily in the National Daily, and it was very... Uh, special for a young reporter to be in it. It's very exciting. In 1972, I went to Sydney, and um, in 1976, I was appointed publisher of The Australian. My job was to repair the damage, the commercial damage that had been done to the publication um, by the events of the dismissal and the uh, desertion of academia from uh, the um, readership of The Australian. Um, it was a soul-destroying job. And uh, as publisher, I, uh, my brief was to range across editorial and the commercial side. Uh, I found the commercial side so difficult that I spent most of my time uh, <laughs> concentrating on the editorial, which was the part I loved. My era at The Australian, which ended in 1978, was marked by the struggle for existence, as it had been right from day one. There were constant threats of closure. Uh, in my period as publisher, we one week made a profit. That was the week we had a 32-page defence supplement. <laughs> we made a profit of, of $25,000 in a year where we, lost a, uh, where we lost $5 million. And that wasn't the worst of it. On the worst year in that era, we lost $8 million. Um, Rupert was under intense pressure internally to close the newspaper, and we were under intense pressure from him to stop the losses. So it was an entertaining period, I can assure you. The Australian entered what you might describe its first period of relative stability under Les Hollings, and uh, Les had two stints in the chair. Warren Beebe was made editor in 1980, and he was in between the two um, um, Hollings uh, editor, editorships. Now, what was the context in your time, Warren? The context of what particularly? Well, when you, when you became editor of The Australian, what was the, the, the context of the time? Well, the context of the time was um, one of industrial and technological chaos. Um, I wish Rupert had given me an undertaking when I took over that The Australian would be there forever. <laughs> because... Uh, <clears throat> Mine was the period when we had that uh, monumental loss that actually was about 8.5 million or something like 50 or 60 million in today's money. Um, we, we were a, just about a day-to-day -day proposition in, in many respects and unfortunately I regard my editorship mainly as um, crisis management. Um, I 
I was production editor of The Australian when the computer computerisation uh, happened on April Fool's Day 1979 and it was truly a fool's day. I think within two hours we had our first computer crash uh, and these happened uh, on a daily basis and sometimes four and five times a day uh, right up until addition time. Um, it was such a such a joke uh, among the staff uh, that when we'd get the flashing red light that showed that the CPU had collapsed again, someone would ring the computer room and ask how bad was the problem and they'd get a, an estimate and uh, that person would yell out, it's a six schooner break. <laughs> everyone, everyone would take off to the hotel. Um, and this is no exaggeration, I'm afraid. Um, that probably was the catalyst for the, for the great journalist strike of 1980 uh, when uh, it was deemed that computers were, were such um, an inhibition to good journalism that uh, the journalists needed a... I think initially they were after a 20% increase um, for the hardship of operating technology. Uh, and it, and it was hard uh, in those days. In the early days, we had something like 42 terminals uh, for a staff of 140. Uh, and that in itself was a problem because we were competing with the Sydney Morning Herald that had close to 300 people. And our 140 covered in interstate and national and, uh, and foreign. Um, the, the strike went for six weeks and it was terribly damaging to the Australian because it, uh, we were unable to bring it out on a daily basis in, in those days. Um, the, um, the journalists set copy on their, on their dumb terminals, everything going down to the CPU to be processed and sent back. Uh, and this produced bromides in the in the printing room and the printers uh, pasted it all up. Um, it was very lucky for us that the journalists and the printers very rarely got on on any subject and uh, the journalists sought to get the uh, to get the printers to support them uh, and but failed and we were able to bring out the Australian only at the weekends. We had to forego the, the daily editions. Um, after the strike was settled with a 6% uh, disability allowance, it was called, for using computers, and there was a brief period of, of uh, peace in the editorial floors. Um, but then industrial action broke out in earnest, and not only were we having almost daily computer crashes, we were having almost daily... Um, stop work meetings um, when the journalists at the most crucial times would just walk out of the place and have a chat about how hard it was to bring a newspaper out with, uh, with faulty equipment, which it was. It was a terrible system. It was replaced um, about two years later by a, a better system that was still uh, fraught with, uh, with technical problems. It got to the point where, uh, where Rupert gave Ken Cowley uh, a brief to uh, close the paper if, uh, if the industrial action kept on going. And uh, I was with him uh, in the boardroom on the day when he actually said, if, if they're not back from the stop work meeting, which was in the car park across the street, Within five minutes, I'm closing the paper. And we got a message across the street, and they came back with a few minutes to spare. And that was a shocker. Uh, Could I just... Um, we'll, we'll hold it there. Plenty of time for further discussion. Um, I didn't ask you, what was your route to the editorial chair? What was your prehistory in journalism? Mm. I started as a copy boy on the Daily Mirror in 1959, aged 16, 
And I came in with a leaving certificate and was told that I was too old and overeducated. <laughs> the, uh, the pattern in those days was to take on, uh, on people from the intermediate certificate and put them through a four-year cadetship. Um, today, I think there are still some uh, cadetships given to people from high school, but I think it's almost universally uh, university graduates. Um, I left the Mirror after a couple of years uh, and went to The Sun, specialising in finance and, and business writing, and came to the Australian in 1966 into the business section. Um, that was when the paper was still in, uh, in Canberra and I was in the Sydney Bureau. And uh, went through various jobs there, a mining writer. We put a lot of emphasis in, uh, in mining and um, that sort of coverage. Um, I went to, I became business editor of the Sunday Australian in 1970 and then in 1974 I went across to, uh, to London uh, with Rupert um, to cover what he believed was going to be the collapse of Britain and he wanted a specialist business writer there to, to cover this uh, economic chaos and decline that was happening over there at, at the time under the Wilson government. Um, fortuitously, at almost the day that I arrived, um, the British struck oil in the North Sea and suddenly the, the economy was on the rise and, uh, and uh, Rupert's worst fears didn't, <laughs> didn't come to fruition. Um, from London I took a monumental switch in direction and went to Canberra as the Bureau Chief for the News Limited newspapers. Uh, was there through 75 until 78 and then came to Sydney in, in 78 as, uh, uh, as leader writer under Les Hollings and then in pretty swift succession production editor, deputy editor, editor and uh, I finally moved on to, uh, to management in 1972, where I spent the next 25-odd years. And thank you. We'll come back to Warren. Warren um, also served um, for a long period on the Australian Press Council. Um, now, David Armstrong, uh, welcome. David was the Australian's first homegrown editor, so perhaps you could explain your path from joining to taking over the paper and then the context of the times when you took over as editor rather than editor-in-chief in what, 1989? 89. Mm. <coughs> okay, thank you. Um, you got to have a bit of luck in, in uh, this life, and I had, I had a lot of luck in 1969. And I was editor of a student newspaper called Tharunka at the University of New South Wales, and there was this new newspaper called The Australian that was trying to get into the university market. And... Our student union somehow managed to negotiate a deal with John Menager, who was then the general manager of News Limited, that the Australians should give a little scholarship to the editor of Soranka. So I got uh, $1,500 a year, and all I had to do at the end was, if I went into journalism, I had to go, go and approach the Australian first. So, of course, I did, and um, they gave me a job. They gave me a start. I was actually taken on to uh, start the higher education supplement um, but there was a little, a little hitch and they said it might take a couple of months before you can do this because they had to persuade the vice chancellors that they should switch the university advertising from Saturday to Wednesday and I'm not sure exactly when the higher education supplement came into being but I think it was sometime in the late, in the late 70s so I, I never had anything to do with it directly um, so I started as a general reporter in Sydney from uh, university, and that's why Paul Kelly and I met on his first day, because they thought these two guys who came from university should get to know each other, because <laughs> there weren't a lot of us. Um, <clears throat> I spent a bit of time in Sydney, a bit of time in, in Canberra doing general political reporting, came back to Sydney as uh, state political roundsman, and then I uh, had uh, a lot of fun in 1975 as the chief editorial writer, finding... Um, different ways of saying day by day, Goff must go and Kerr must act. 
and, uh, and in due course both both happened. Um, I took took part in the uh, in the strike of 1975, and I'm uh, and then and then I'd resigned anyhow. I left. I ended up with the bulletin. I'm told, I don't know if it's literally true or just metaphorical, that my papers were marked, never to be employed again. Uh, and certainly when, a few years later, when uh, Warren and uh, uh, Brian Boswell asked me to come back to the Australian, it required a change in managing director before I was allowed to take the job from Ken May to Ken Cowley. And Ken Cowley tells me, he said at the time, Okay, you can you can you can hire Armstrong, but if it all goes bad, it's on your head. <laughs> okay. So I spent a couple of years uh, working with Warren, and then uh, with uh, Sir Larry Lamb in his brief time as uh, editor of the editor of the Australian. Um, known <coughs> known uh, far and wide as Sirloin, but to the cognoscenti in the paper, he was known as Racker, and um, that was a. a Terrible time, and that included the time that Warren referred to when uh, in the paper almost closed. And we we had to um, <coughs> the two conditions. You know, the industrial action had to end. We had to get the costs down dramatically, and had to get the costs down by 25 percent, which involved sacking about 40 people. Can you guys speak up? Yeah, I can't speak up. Sorry, I've got a I've got a, a problem with my throat. <laughs> Come forward, man. <laughs> this is the other thing that happens on the seven-hour operation. Sorry. <clears throat> yes. We had we had to sack um, forty people in one go, and uh, on that particular weekend, uh, Larry Lamb went fishing down at Lake Eucumbeen. I I had to draw up the hit list. Um, and I said to um, gosh, Mental Block, the guy who was the general manager at the time, do Ken, I have to... No, no, no. Oh, no, 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 the other one. <laughs> <laughs> London Lestage. Yeah. Frank Shaw. Yeah. <laughs> Remember the forehead face of the moustache? <laughs> Doesn't matter. I said to him... That memorable character. Memorable <laughs> <laughs> character. I said... Do I have to actually sack these people? And he said, no. He said, you make the bullets and we'll fire them. No, but that was Brian Hogman. Brian Hogman, yes. Yeah. That's right. But it was Warren who actually had to do the, do the, uh, the, the firing, which is a terrible, a terrible experience because he, he, knew, he knew who was who. Yeah. So he was the one who had to go around the room and point out. But uh, nevertheless, David, that did set the paper on the road to profitability. Yes, yes, it did. And a couple of years later, uh, Les Hollings got it there. Um, I left the Australian after after that. I went to the Bulletin for a while, then back to, back to News Limited, uh, writing political commentaries for the Daily Telegraph. And I was deputy editor of the Daily Telegraph, and all set to be editor under a deal we'd arranged. And then suddenly, as a change of heart by the management, I found myself on the Australian as deputy editor to uh, Frank Devine. Um, and Frank. Um, had his own issues with uh, the senior management at the time, and uh, by the end of 1989, uh, Frank had been uh, moved on to other things, and I was, I was editor. What was the political economic context of those times? Yeah, well, the political context generally, I suppose, was <coughs> we had a Labor government, which uh, the paper uh, had generally supported, certainly at election times. We had one little one little uh, thing we had to do on the first day, which was the, there was an election in Queensland the next day, <coughs> and the opportunity to uh, end um, so many decades, I forget how many, of National Party rule. Uh, so we wrote an editorial um, advocating the election of a Goss Labor government, which um, was a little a little marker to be as poor saying we're not we're not a paper of one particular party. We got the right in rather stuff. The time was fairly prosperous. Um, I think we, we kept on in profits, but uh, just around the corner was the recession we had to have, uh, which again was a period of, of uh, contraction on not not a second period of, or you're yeah, sacking a few people. I'm sorry, a period of contraction on the paper, uh, a period of, of difficulty, 
Um, but I think I think we still. Well, I'll ask because we didn't do it, but I think the paper still managed to uh, turn in a profit during that period. Yeah. Okay, um, David. Thank you. We'll come back there now. Uh, Michelle Gunn is currently editor of the Weekend Australian, uh, and it's an entirely different era to those days. Of, well, not maybe not entirely. <laughs> In my day, it was eternal struggle. What is it? <laughs> but you're, you are you are exposed to the great transition towards digital products. The, the problems you are living it. So could you talk a bit about your career path to the job sure. and the context that you see editing at the moment? Okay, sure. Um, well, I started on The Australian in 1989, 88, 88. Frank Devine gave me my cadetship on The Australian and then... Um, I worked as a reporter for David. I think David appointed me social affairs writer and then social affairs editor during his uh, stint as editor and editor-in-chief. And obviously then I also worked for, for Paul. Um, I, I started in the 80s, worked in Sydney, did a, lot, a range of, you know, in those days we did do everything at the beginning of our careers, a um, range of reporting jobs. I went to Melbourne, worked in the Melbourne Bureau for three or four years and came back and then really stuck to social affairs reporting for a long time, focusing on uh, social policy for the paper. Um, and then 10 or 12 years ago, I moved into managing the Sydney Bureau. So I was Sydney Bureau Chief for three or four years, then uh, moved to be National Chief of Staff and ran the news desk on the paper and then Deputy Editor and then uh, my current job as editor of the weekend paper I took on in September 2012. So I've uh, spent my whole adult life on The Australian. I started uh, when I was 18 and here I am today. Now you asked me about the transition to the digital. The issues confronting the modern editor, yeah. no longer just paper. No, well that's right and I think, I think The Australian's path has been an interesting one because, as Paul said uh, earlier on in his address, um, News Corporation and certainly the Australians still have a very strong commitment to our print product. But now, of course, we just believe in delivering that product across platforms. Um, unlike some of our competitors, we've always believed that the paper that you are, you are, and you should be across, no matter what um, the delivery Platforms. So I think if you find, you know, our readers who read our edition-based app or read us on mobile or, or indeed on the web are getting very much the same products they get when they purchase the print edition every day. I think that does distinguish us from some of our competitors at the minute. So, look, 90, I think Chris, is, Chris Mitchell has remarked that, um, you know, 90% of our revenue is still in print, so we're not walking away from print in a hurry. However, you know, I do think we're probably um, we're probably market leaders in in paid content as well. Two and a half years ago, we we uh, went to a paid subscription model. We now have about sixty five thousand paid subscribers on the Oz, and that's growing. Um, that that number is about if you look at proportionally, it's about half, I think, our peak Monday to Friday Cirque, which was which was about 1.30. It's now about 1.10 to 1.15. So I think those numbers are pretty healthy, and I think, um, you know, we're pretty positive about the future. We love our edition-based iPad. I think the company has a lot of um, faith, both uh, in terms of reader engagement and also uh, advertising in in the uh, tablet because I think the um, experience of the UK Times, for example, is that you're getting readers engaging with the content on the iPad for, you know, durations of 40 minutes that are comparable to the levels of engagement you get, you know, in a, in a newspaper. So I think it's an exciting time to be a newspaper editor, really. 
particularly as nobody knows the outcome. Well, that's true. <laughs> We're on a journey, Mark. <laughs> Where and when will we get there? <laughs> it is very interesting. Um, thank you, Michelle. Now, um, I uh, have, as Paul mentioned, I've been uh, uh, for the past 18 months or so down a very extensive historical burrow with the Australian um, um, writing the first 25 years for the uh, um, 50 Years in 50 Days series, which is coming to an end. Alan Howe has done the second 25 years. And um, I was reminded when I was doing that, I've referred to Dennis Cryle's book on a number of occasions. Um, he wrote the first 25 years of the Australian. I reviewed the book uh, when it was published uh, and I was rather critical of it because um, many of the things that he recorded in that book were not the way I remembered them. And um, uh, on rereading it and using it as a reference for this most recent series, um, I withdraw much of that criticism because he did an extraordinarily good job to get to the core of what was happening, even though in detail uh, I do take issue with, with some minor aspect. But listening to Paul this morning talking about the great sweep of history, you forget the little ripples that occur on a day-to-day -day basis. And I remember my period as publisher and later editor-in-chief um, very much uh, as dealing with the issues of the day rather than sitting there staring out the window and saying, where shall we go in the broad sweep of history? Sure, you've always got in the back of your mind that you're editing a product for a particular market, and that market was clearly understood and, as Paul did today, clearly defined. But not every day do the stories you're dealing with have anything to do with that. And um, in my period, um, um, we've, I found that the... Uh, the greatest difficulty was to get a polished, balanced product on a daily basis and involved dealing with a lot of individuals and a lot of individual stories. And I did not have a... Uh, my eyes firmly fixed on the horizon. I had my eyes firmly fixed about where my next step was. Now, I say that to introduce uh, um, the panel again to ask how you saw your role as the editor, both conceptually and in practice. Warren. Well, I think, I think I saw it pretty much the way that you did, that, uh, uh, as I explained, um, technical and uh, industrial issues were dominating uh, things on a daily basis, uh, but we covered that, that wide spectrum of, uh, of stories from... Uh, from courts, you know, through through state parliaments and industrially and arts features, uh, we were always very strong and focused on the arts. Um, we liked food. We did a lot of food things back in those days. Um, higher education supplement was a was a priority, uh, as was the the uh, technology section, which in those days was called computers. And that was largely the financial driver of the paper, uh, even then, but more so as, as years went on and the, the paper plunged into profit. Unfortunately, unfortunately the, I thought management took its eye off the technology section and allowed the internet to eat its breakfast. Uh, so that, that guaranteed uh, financial stream that supported the paper for so long was, uh, was lost. Um, but it was largely day-to-day -day issues. Uh, during my editorship, Malcolm Fraser was uh, in the early stages of his um, prime ministership, and uh, it's safe to say the paper was still at that stage largely supportive of him. Um, I think that just about covers that. David? Yeah. <coughs> You don't sit there <coughs> worrying about the fate of the world every five minutes. You're right. Um, it is a, it is a daily a daily struggle. However, I was, I was having, having worked on the bulletin and the Australian. The bulletin was very active in the early in the early 80s um, on the question of of making Australia a more <coughs> 
competitive, more open economy. Um, I, was, I was very conscious of that, that stream of the Australian's editorial stance, <coughs> making more, a more open nation generally, as Paul said, they are supporting the, um, um, the big, what, what came to be called Big Australia, but supporting uh, um, a, a, a very generous migration policy. Also trying to build up, you know, there's the mission of the Australians, national national affairs, so trying to build up political coverage, business coverage, the arts, as, as Warren mentioned. Um, the economic coverage, the foreign affairs coverage, which is terribly important to the Australian. And, and even in the end, uh, trying to build up sport. But, did that have its particularly difficult, particular difficulties because of the nature of sport in Australia? Yeah, because it was all fragmented in the winter. Yes. Um, Special editions. We um, we came we we came to take eventually to take AFL seriously, and we were aided by the fact that rugby league became kind of national. Yeah. Uh, but we we appointed some uh, some very senior people in um, Melbourne. Uh, and in sports writers, and we and we put uh, we we work very closely with the AFL to find a role for the Australian, which is different from the, the state-based papers. Um, and <coughs> we we even though um, News Limited owned owned Super League at the time, we we gave preference to AFL over Rugby League. But this this goes to the sort of schizophrenic nature of the paper at times, doesn't it? Because there there were times where there were split editions, uh, yes. AFL for the southern yes. states and and uh, league for the northern states. Well, uh, hello, national paper that goes um, diametrically opposed to the to the concept. That's right. That's right. Could yeah. I just throw in there yeah. on the sporting side? Um, from its inception, the Australian was always very strong on racing yes. and uh, covered racing in all the states, replating for Victoria and Brisbane and so on. And it was costing a small fortune. And uh, uh, during my editorship, uh, when the pressure was on costs, uh, I was compelled to drop the uh, racing section back to, to bare bones. And uh, I uh, argued that this was going to cost us a lot of circulation, and uh, I was told, "Well, it'll be uh, it'll be the seed demographic, and you won't really lose much circulation anyway." Well, we lost six thousand copies a day on 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 each day, and in, in a circulation it was then about a hundred and twenty. That was quite a significant quite a significant drop in circulation. But what was the cost-benefit? I mean, uh, how much did you save by eliminating all those people and all that work? Well, um, newsprint we went from about three pages down to uh, down to one generally. Um, staffing, I'm not sure that we lost any staff at that stage. They were moved around. Um, well, it must have been deemed significant for the, for it to be done, but uh, um, I'm not quite sure about that. Yeah. Uh, Michelle, how do you see your role as editor? Well, getting back to your, to your question mark about, you know, how you focus on the day-to-day -day and also on the, uh, on the horizon, I think, actually, Noel Pearson is going to make some remarks at our 50th, which is coming up in a few weeks, and whilst I wouldn't uh, talk about uh, what remarks he's going to make in uh, broad terms, he, he does make a comment in which he said the Australian's always been a paper that focuses on the here and now but has one eye on the horizon. And I think that Paul um, captured that also in his address this morning. And I think we do um, walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think, you know, it, it's evident in Paul's comments about fair and probing reporting, the extent to which we do take being a paper of record seriously. And. Uh, uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, and it's particularly evident in our inquiry section in, in the weekend paper I edit, for example, having your, uh, having your vision also on those values that Rupert defined for the paper in the very beginning, you know, and pursuing, I guess, some would say campaigning on those issues that are close to the newspaper's heart, safe Indigenous affairs, um, 
you know so I think we we aim as Paul said this morning to do both and I think that's something you tussle with you know day in day out when you're putting a paper together your focus though of course is on one edition a week isn't it so, Does that give you a, a weeks, different? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I edited yesterday, and so you know, some weeks I do edit a couple of papers during uh, the week. But my primary job is the Saturday paper. And is it easier or harder to sit there on a Monday or Tuesday and say this is what we'll plan to do on Saturday, and it might be read on Sunday? Yeah, look, it's 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 a dream job in Australian journalism because you do have that, you do have time to think. You know, if Clive's taking care of the Monday to Friday paper with uh, with Chris, and I've got uh, days to plan, it's 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 fantastic. Now, sometimes you junk those plans. Sometimes you have a great idea on a Monday, which by a Thursday looks not so good, and you start again. Um, uh, but it's uh, it's fantastic with a section like Inquirer, for example. Inquirer, you know, does bounce out of. I think even now more than ever does bounce out of the week's events. So often on a Thursday, we won't know what the cover of Inquirer is uh, necessarily. But then other weeks, we'll have, we'll have a, an investigative news agenda that someone like Hedley Thomas is pursuing, and we'll commission him to aim for a front page news story, and also to see if he can enlarge upon it um, for Inquirer. So yeah, it's, it's, it's great because you've actually got that time to, to plan. You mentioned Headley, and you're a current editor, so I'll, I'll pop this one up here. Um, what would, what are, what, what's the context in which the series of Clive Palmer stories are coming up? Has Chris or Rupert or anybody said, get Palmer, or just how is, <laughs> how is this happening? No, not to my knowledge. I mean, the thing that most people would know about Headley Thomas, those of you who know him, is he's not um, one who's easily directed. Uh, Headley, uh, whether it's Hanif, whether it's the Wyvernhoe Dam coverage, whether it's you know anything he's done over the past ten years, he uh, he doesn't need much encouragement once he decides that uh, there's a yarn there and he wants to pursue it. Um, so with uh, Clive Palmer, uh, Headley decided to take a good look at him. Um, we would say <laughs> uh, that was a pretty sound thing to do, given what uh, would. Uh, Eventuate, and of course, Clive now, with together with his senators, um, holding the balance of power is a really very important position in Australian politics. So, no, we had a look, and we've kept looking. And you know, in a way, it's very surprising to us that our competitors haven't been looking so hard, given that a lot of Headley's reporting, particularly in recent month, um, stems from um, court documents. There's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of sorry. There's not um, it's civil court action that CIDIC, um, a Chinese company, has taken to recover funds that it believes uh, are rightfully uh, it. Um, so Headley's reporting recently is, uh, is uh, driven by court reporting and documents in both Western Australia and Queensland. So it's pretty standard reporting. It's just that uh, he knows what rocks to look under. Yes, I think this is often the case, isn't it? You start a ball rolling and you never know where it'll go and you've just got to keep following it. And, uh, um, I think that was uh, best exemplified by uh, um, Watergate. Uh, follow the money. Um, there is a perception, I think, in the, um, in the public, not shared by all media, that Rupert Murdoch, who was central to the story of the Australian calls the shots and um, I would agree with Paul that um, in my initial um, time Rupert um, explained in quite simple terms where he wanted to take the paper and, and why but I want to ask each of the editors about this perception of the all-powerful Murdoch proprietorial intervention editorial instructions <coughs> um, or interference uh, on the day-to-day -day operations of the paper. Um, let's start with you, Warren. Was Rupert an ever-present force telling you what to do? When I was bureau chief in Canberra from 75 to 78, he was a, he was a weekly telephone visitor. Where uh, was he, London? 
wherever, London, America, you never, knew, you never knew where Rupert was. Could have been in Sydney for all I knew. Um, generally in, inquiring what was going on, um, particularly through the period when uh, supply had been denied, he was uh, forever wondering how Labor was holding up, how, how Liberals were holding up, how Fraser was going. Um, at the time, we had a, a very forceful old chairman called Sir Kenneth May, who, uh, who used to give Rupert his daily briefing on what was going on. And Sir Kenneth, I think it's safe to say, was uh, far right, <laughs> further <Genius> right. <laughs> he was from so, <laughs> <laughs> so usually, when the, when Rupert would call to inquire, he'd already had this. Um, right-wing view of what was happening in the world. Um, I can only recall one, one occasion when, when he questioned what I was... Two occasions when, I can, when he questioned what I was doing. One of them was simply over the layout of the paper and his perception that the headlines were too big. And Mark points out to me that he used to say the same thing when Mark was on the mirror. Yeah, but the next breath was, show more, bigger. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the other one was, um, I think it was 1980, when, uh, when Peacock was gearing up for a challenge to Malcolm Fraser. We had a correspondent in Canberra then by the name of uh, Russell Snyder, who was well connected with the Liberal Party and, uh, and had an inside running on the thing. And I'm sure Rupert was uh, was getting the word from Malcolm Fraser by via Sir Kenneth uh, every day that this uh, mounting pressure was a myth, and he kept on. Rupert would call it, you know, once a week and say, you know, what, what's this, uh, what's this peacock business? What's what's going on? And uh, eventually, when the uh, when the challenge happened and Peacock was defeated, I never heard from Rupert. <laughs> he was uh, always questioning whether we were getting it right and uh, never conceding when we did. Uh, I think we've all got yarns like that, but in, in summary, was Rupert there pulling the strings? No, he wasn't. Um, David, were you a puppet? <laughs> people, people say that Rupert only appoints editors who agree with him. Mm. That they have to editors have some kind of you know, Thatcherite, Reaganite view of the world and that's why he appoints them. As though this is some blinding insight, as though the Guardian would appoint a Tory as editor or the New York Times would appoint a, would appoint a Republican. Rupert, I think, does pick people who he knows shares the vision of the paper, who understand the vision of the paper and who probably generally, in their approach to national affairs, share share certain values to greater or lesser de <coughs> degree. Excuse me. And those are mainly values about an open an open uh, competitive economy and those sorts of things. But you can be, you don't have to be, um, what's the word, uh, hard and fast, 100% true blue Thatcherite to to qualify. You you have to have a, a certain a certain general view. I think, of the way the world works and the paper's position in that world. Um, and then, as Paul said, you you, you just get on with the job. Um, Rupert, uh, Rupert rang me once to discuss what we're, what we're going to be saying editorially. Over what period of time? Oh, it's about uh, eight, or nine, eight or nine years. Yeah. Um, and that was with the uh, Paul Keating's first challenge against Bob Hawke, and he he asked who, who we were going to support. So I went into this long-winded uh, explanation of everything and all the, all the factors of, of play and so on. And he said, yes, but who are we going to support? And I said, Keating. I said, Keating. And he said, OK, we've got no problems then. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Mind you, there's a qualification of that is that when I was editor-in-chief, we had Lachlan. Um, we had Lachlan as, uh, as our uh, chief executive. And maybe some of the things that, maybe, just maybe, some of the things that Lachlan had to say were inspired by overnight conversations with Rupert. Mm -hmm. But they were mainly uh, criticisms when Lachlan thought, and this is why, why you think it must go back to Rupert, Lachlan thought we were being too socially liberal. He thought we were, we were playing, 
we get some snipe remarks that we were playing to the Oxford Street crowd a bit too much. And you just say, uh, that's, that's got to be Rupert initially. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could just tell a story there. Uh, uh, in my period, both as uh, editor of the Sunday Mail Adelaide, the Daily Mirror, Truth and the Australian, there were only a couple of occasions where uh, Rupert told me what he wanted. One of them was um, November 11, 1975. He was in Sydney and I was editing the Mirror on the day the announcement came through that um, Kerr had sacked Goff. They were at lunch in the boardroom and I just barged in and imparted the news. And there was that, you know, the silence you get on a a satellite thing, 2.3 seconds, you wait, boom, (laughs) 2.3. Ken railing out of muddy, whoopee, and threw his napkin up in the air. Rupert didn't say a word, he just rushed past me to his office, whereupon, no doubt, he hit the phone. Later in the afternoon, he came around and he said, right, let's have an editorial tomorrow. More in sorrow than in anger, Whitlam must go. I said, very well, Rupert, thank you. So I sat down there and I did a 600-word editorial, which ended more in sorrow than in anger, Whitlam must go. (laughs) That was published the next day. There was a protest in Hyde Park. The protesters marched on Holt Street, tore copies of the mirror off the trucks down in the street, set them on fire, and I said, the power of words. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty willing stuff, but uh, that was the only time I ever got an instruction from Rupert on exactly what to say in an editorial. Does Rupert hit the phone every week and have a chat, tell you what to say, pull your strings? No, I mean, look, Chris has, Chris Mitchell has the relationship with Rupert, speaks to him regularly, no doubt. But, you know, on the four or five occasions I've met Rupert, the thing that, um, the thing that I think distinguishes him is his curiosity. He asks a lot more questions than he, uh, you know, he asks a heap of questions about what's going on in Australia, about politicians, about public policy, about this and that. And, uh, so no, that I mean, I've only met Rupert four or five times, but I had some great conversations with him, and and he asks more than he, you know, yeah. So is it right, therefore, to say that uh, this um, perception of Murdochian interference is not true? That by all means there is a Murdochian influence more by osmosis rather than direct action. Do we agree with that? I think so. Yeah, I think so. But, but uh, it, it, it varies. Um, I suspect I spent a bit of time in London talking to our UK colleagues at the time, and he he would be much more uh, active, actively intervening there, and much on the phone for a couple of hours, two or three times a week to the editors in London, uh, and discussing issues and and issuing directives. And I think, you know, maybe it's not a great. Um, virtue on his part is just more concerned about what goes on in the bigger capitals of the world than he is than what goes on in Australia. And yet the Oz has always been regarded as his baby and he's, he's said that and many occasions we've commented that uh, we'd love to earn Rupert's annual phone bill um, because it doesn't matter where he is, he knows the time zone and he's on the phone. He'll find you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's uh, move on. Um, how do you view the Australians' competitors? Um, did the Australian always march to its own tune, or was it influenced by what others did? We'll start with your era, Warren. Um, very, very much we marched to our own tune. Um, the, the Sydney Morning Herald was not our only competitor. We regarded the Financial Review as a significant competitor because of the emphasis that we put on business reporting. But I always thought the Sydney Morning Herald was a bit all over the place. uh, um, Talking to David earlier, he he mentioned that the uh, Sydney Morning Herald lost sight of its... uh, constituency on the North Shore and uh, swayed uh, back to, to issues that uh, affected the West and, and the outer areas more. On occasions it uh, tried to be the, the national paper and then contracted to be the state paper competing with the Telegraph. And I, I, 
I think that was its problem. It wasn't quite sure whether it was competing with the Telegraph or the Australian. And in my view, it should have consistently competed with the Australian. The Australian should compete with? The Sydney Morning Herald should have consistently competed with the Australian, uh, rather than be preoccupied every now and then with the Telegraph, which had the bigger circulation, of course. David, did you keep an eye on the competition? We keep an eye on the competition. The, the trouble is the competition was everyone. The competition was the Sydney Morning Herald, Financial Review, The Age, The Courier Mail, the Adelaide Advertiser, and so on. So you couldn't afford to be focusing on what everyone else was doing all the time. So even, even if you didn't want to, you'd just naturally be, be marching to your own drum. Um, besides, we, we did have a fairly clear vision of what, what we thought the paper should be, should be and should be doing. And, and you didn't allow um, yourself to get distracted by what the, what the Sydney Morning Herald was thinking or what the age was thinking. They had, they had their own problems. You know, the, circuit, the loss of circulation in the Sydney Morning Herald and the age uh, dates, as long as it's the, 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 when the graph really starts coming down, it predates the internet. They're having, they're having issues before, before the internet came along. Um, I once did an exercise in, in the late 80s, and I forget exactly when, but Howard, the, the Liberals decided to do a, um, a midterm election campaign and put a lot of uh, advertising money into, um, into newspapers and television. And they gave no money to, to the Daily Telegraph, took no ads in the Daily Telegraph. So I got um, the circulation people to show me well, it's effectively a circulation map of Sydney. And there are two Sydneys. If you, if you drop down from Hornsby to about Stratfield and across to Randwick Coogee, Sydney Morning Herald Territory, everything west and south of that was Daily Telegraph Territory, and really very, very clearly so. <coughs> now, the, I pointed this out to Howard's office, and we got some money to the Daily Telegraph for those Southern Beach uh, electorates. <laughs> They saw the wisdom of that. But the other point is, there's a, a, a stage at which the Sydney Morning Herald became maybe even hostile to the conservative values of that North Shore constituency and just dropped them off and concentrated far more on that sort of arc in the west out to the beach. So was, and um, <coughs> that's a fine thing to do if you if you want to support those, those issues. I'm not arguing with it, but it does rather limit your, your uh, ability to sell newspapers. And, uh, Michelle, um, I shouldn't ask you this question because it's blindingly obvious that you keep a very close idea, eye on what's happening at Fairfax. You've only got to read cut and paste <laughs> on a daily basis. Yeah, we, we get some fodder for cut and paste from our competitors, for sure. But I think... Um, I think I think there's never been a greater difference between perhaps, I mean, others might disagree, but I think the difference between ourselves and our competitors is more stark than ever. And I think that because um, Chris has fostered very much a news-breaking culture on the paper where we judge ourselves by how many exclusives we have on the front every day. You don't want to wake up and see that the front of the Sydney Morning Herald and now even the age nor the Fin review as, as David said we compete with everyone including the, our state-based news corp papers and a good day for us is when our page one is dominated by yarns no one else has or indeed you know in the recent for example um, the Clive Palmer uh, Gore uh, situation where you have a story where everybody is going to look at it we we're pretty proud of our reporting effort on that where we kind of um, exposed <laughs> if you like, the, um, what was really going on there and, and Fairfax did not. So I think, um, yes, we keep an eye on them, of course, but um, we run our own race very much so and that's how we like it. Because in the early days, the, the real problem was to, for the Australian to be noticed in, the, in the, the capitals, particularly outside Sydney, um, 
because you know there was such a tradition. The the audiences of the Age and the Herald Sun and the Advertiser were so rusted on that we had to offer something different or just be lost. And um, uh, I, I agree. Chris Mitchell's number one policy is breaking news. Guess what? Newsflash. So was ours back in 1975. <laughs> if we couldn't re be reporting something different or in a different manner, yeah. we were utterly lost. You had to know what your opposition was doing, but then you had to forget what they were doing and do something which was an umbrella right across the top and relevant right across the nation. And um, there were periods where this was uh, tackled by special editions. There was a special edition for Victoria for a while. There was a, uh, a little digger wraparound, uh, first in Canberra and then in Queensland. Well, these attacked the very core of the notion that we were a national paper. And um, the Queensland one actually uh, did work. It built circulation by 15,000, 20,000, much of which hung on after it went. But it was still a, a core conundrum back then and to an extent still now to how to be different when well, your competition is everybody else. That's absolutely right. And in, for a lot of our history in capital cities, we were very much a second buy, as, mm. as, you're, as yep. you're alluding to there. And we did, um, you know, I remember 10, 15 years ago, we did a lot more strip-ins, you know. We'd, we'd have a column eight story on page three and five and we'd change it five times and have a different story in that same spot for the five different states. Um, we did that a lot. We did have the, the offer in Melbourne where we had a Victorian page or sometimes double page there for a little while. I don't think it worked tremendously well. Um, but David That White didn't work, but, but cutting the price did. Yeah, <laughs> that's true, and they went in tandem, didn't they? Yeah, we cut the price, we cut the price in half in Melbourne and um, <clears throat> we took the circulation in Melbourne from about 22 to 23,000 to about 48,000. Yeah. And then when we put the price back, we went down to... 30-something. So it was a, about a 50% increase that lasted for some time. I don't know how long. Cause I but this was an experiment taken straight out of Fleet Street, yep. wasn't it? Yes. Where in that period the Fleet Street papers were halving their prices and even cutting them by two-thirds yep. uh, for what was really fountain effect sales, like bingo, to go through the roof and as soon as you stopped or went back to normal, it just settled back there. So they were high-priced sales in promotional terms, or costly promotional terms. Um, perhaps we could pose one final question to the panel out of the, uh, the reference to the bulletin. Kerry Packer, towards the, um, the more difficult days of the bulletin, said, you have a magazine like this for profit or for influence? At the moment, I have neither. <laughs> Each of the panel. Can we see? We'll start with you, David. Can we see the day when when Rupert or his successors may say the same? Um, well, I'd hope I'd hope we'd never see the day that um, <coughs> they would say that the Australian is, is without influence. Um, and I think the Australian um, has a, a, a much clearer idea of its, its idea to get its place in the marketplace than the Bulletin did in the 1980s. This is the period that Kerry was referring to. The other thing that shouldn't be forgotten, I, and I, you know, seeing this from afar, I don't know the, I don't know the details, but when, when um, News Corporation was split into two companies, the movie company and the, and the newspaper company, Foxtel was put into the newspaper company. And Rupert said at the time, there's a reason for this, he says, just like when the TV station in Adelaide subsidised the Australian. So Foxtel is meant to be, meant to be cross-subsidising the newspapers. So He also pointed out the obvious that it was um, very difficult to manage Foxtel in Australia from Hollywood. Yes. It's better oh, to indeed. have it in the hands of some Australians who actually... And, and, and the Hollywood guys who, uh, who, want, who want to get rid of the newspapers yeah. wouldn't have cared tuppence about Foxtel. Yeah. Yes, mm. sure. But um, I, 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 that's your question. I don't. If, if that ever happens, it's a long, a long time off. Mm. Well, I'd suggest that there were about 15 years when there was a, a very robust debate going on between Rupert and the board of News Limited uh, about profit over influence, and uh, um, it's fair to say that that the board, for a long time. 
uh, was unprepared to tolerate the losses that Rupert was and that he kept it going, I suspect, uh, because of its influence. And it's always been a major factor in his uh, support for the Australian over the years. Michelle? Well, I'd agree with all of that and probably just end where Paul began this morning. I mean, take it from Rupert himself when Paul asked him a couple of months ago or a month ago in LA about how long the Australian would last. He gave him that one-word answer, forever. That's all we need to know. In one form or another. Thank you very much. <laughs> you've, been, you've been a lovely audience. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to The Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow The Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates and be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.